Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. Or sometimes they're movies that are simply a small blip on the cinematic radar that need to uh, get a little bit more attention and a little bit more love. This episode we are tackling Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is a 1970s psychological horror movie. I'm your host, Chris. I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew. How are you doing today, sir? I'm all right. I'm just waking up for my all-nighters. And we're joined once again with our very special guest, Phyllis. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here again. We are... It is our... Our pleasure to have you on the show again. You uh, did an incredible job helping us dissect Dune. So I'm looking forward to Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Uh, Just going to give a quick breakdown, a quick plot synopsis, some of the technical aspects, and then we'll uh, get into talking about this. So this movie was directed by John Hancock in his motion picture directorial debut. He had a uh, history in theater theater direction the screenplay is credited to john hancock and lee calcium it was filmed in connecticut in 25 days in the fall of 1970 it was produced by charles b moss jr and william badato moss moss's family um owned a a couple movie theaters and so they helped produce this particular movie and we'll get into some of the influence that uh, Moss had with the director. The cinematography was done by Robert M. Baldwin. It was edited by Murray Solomon. The music is by Orville Stober and is one of the first horror movies to utilize a synthesizer. I'll get that word right eventually. It was produced independently and eventually was purchased by Paramount Pictures which distributed the movie. It was released on August 27th, 1971. It had a budget of $250,000 and in its opening box office week, it grossed $47,651. That was a very limited release. It was not a wide theatrical release that you could a movie that you could see everywhere. The cast is comprised of Zoa Lambert, who portrays the titular Jessica. Her husband, Duncan, is portrayed by Barton Heyman. Their friend, Woody, is portrayed by Kevin O'Connor. The mysterious drifter, Emily, is portrayed by Mary Claire Costello. And the mysterious 
blonde mute woman was portrayed by Gretchen Corbett or Corbet. I'm not sure. The story deals with Jessica, who was recently released from a mental institution and is taken to the Connecticut farmhouse by her husband and friend. So in an attempt to recover from the psychological break that she suffered previously, it's a story of a woman questioning her own sanity and eventually discovering that the mysterious things that are happening to her and her friends are actually not all in her mind, that it is something that is happening for real. Now, this was a movie that uh, Andrew suggested. It is a movie previously that I was unfamiliar with. After watching it a couple times, I can say that this is an absolutely brilliant and underrated horror movie, and um, it definitely deserves a lot more love and attention than it it gets. I'm going to open it up. We'll start with Andrew because you you have an interesting history with this movie. You were telling me how the first time that you saw this was on a late night TV, correct? That's correct. I it was in it was in the eighties. Uh, I was living up in Maine. I was in high school. I was a teenager, and I was uh, into a double feature that ran on Saturday nights after Saturday Night Live on our local channel. It would be a double feature of horror movies called Saturday Night Dead. So I. I remember for this particular movie, I set the VCR to record to record it, and I didn't watch it until I think several days later. And I may have watched it in the broad daylight, uh, you know, at home inside. But it it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I realized I, I recognized its um, its artistry uh, at that time, and so through the years, I always had that that copy on VHS, uh, but it wasn't until the early 2000s uh, that I obtained a DVD bootleg before before it was re-released and grew to all over again, but it always stayed very much in my psyche, and I didn't realize this, but uh, I was born while they were filming it, so when you just gave the background, I, I put that together. I was born when they were filming it, and uh, it's fun- and I was born in California, so it's funny that years and years later, I would end up up in New England uh, being a fan of the movie. Yeah. And Phyllis, you saw it for the first time today, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts? I'm interested on, what are, what are your thoughts on this movie? Um, so I've always hated Connecticut, and it just affirms that you have to stay out of it. Um, I thought I thought that was a you know an interesting kind of local 
New England kind of uh, mythology. Um, and um, yeah, I liked it. I like folk horror. I don't, you know, I always look at things in a kind of critical lens, and I, I was trying to suss out some, you know, larger socio-political messages, and I don't know if it, like, really went there um, the way I think some really great folk horror does, but I do think that um, it was a great movie, and it was, it was like, really well made. Absolutely, please. So, uh, I always thought that they had just found this bizarre, weird actress out of nowhere to play the part of Jessica. Uh, and, you know, that she was perfect, you know, that she just breezed into the audition or showed up one day and they were like, she was born to play this role, uh, you know. But she's actually a minor movie star. Uh, she was in Splendor in the Grass with Warren Beatty and Natalie Wood back in 1961. So that was like about 10 years prior to Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And she did a lot of a lot of TV. The whole cast did a lot of TV. Uh, I looked at their IMDb pages. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Zora Lambert ended up doing, she was in John Cassavetti's opening night with Jenna Rollins. She's, so she acts, she does movies with movie stars. I had no idea. Let's let's talk yeah. let's talk about the name of this movie because it is deceptively sneaky. It's not at all I would say that this is one of those movies that you absolutely need to go in blind to. Because this is one of those movies where I genuinely did I had no idea where the story was going and it did not end up where I thought it was going to go. I, I think that it's very interesting. So, originally, the original script by Lee Calcium was a satire of horror movies, and it was a, a, the story of a group of hippies that was preyed upon by a monster in a lake. Would anyone like to venture a guess to what the original title of the script was? Wow, I have no idea. The original title of the script was It Drinks Hippie Blood. Uh, I approve. And I, I think Phyllis brings up an interesting point. There is some kind of like sociopolitical commentary, especially with um, the group of people that, you know, when they come into this small Connecticut town, they're viewed by the locals as as hippies, but they don't really they don't really look like hippies. They don't have there's they're not like be they're not wearing like beaded necklaces. They're not like what the stereotypical hippie one of the guys has a big uh upright base and the the case looks like a coffin and there's a joke because they are driving around they're driving so they are driving in a hearse they have a big upright base that does look like a coffin there's some comments about them you know it's it, it's it's not really about that it's there's there's a lot going on in this movie psychologically and you could say there are a bunch of red herrings throughout the film uh, that kind of lead you to think, okay, well, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And it, it doesn't really, it doesn't even really fit into the standard vampire genre either. Oh, no, not at all. Right? I know. Yeah. So, I mean, what is it? Is it like a vampire slash zombie slash, you know, ESP 
like there's I don't know how to categorize it beyond, beyond being a horror movie. Now it's it's initially when I watched it, I got some strong Wicker Man vibes. And please note that when we are, if we do refer to the Wicker Man during this show, uh, we are of course referring to the original 1973 Wicker Wicker Man and not the atrocious Nicolas Cage remake. I have not seen that yet. And Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man, is my favorite movie, hands down. Um, oh, well, well, you'll have to join us when we do that one. So I got some strong Wicker Man vibes, but this came out before the Wicker Man. <laughs> It did, it did it really? Yes. Uh, Wicker Man was 73. This is 71. Okay. Uh, just as a quick side note, the, the actress who plays the girl, the blonde girl in, the, in Let's Scare Jessica to Death, just filmed a movie with Nicolas Cage. She still works and does a lot. <laughs> there you have it. Wow. Yeah, just as a footnote. But uh, you, okay, so you got strong Wicker Man vibes. Why? Because of the town town folk why uh outsider coming into a small community some strange behavior from the locals not feeling very welcome and then kind of just the climb the climax of the movie when it's finally revealed that emily is in fact a vampire pretty much the queen she's kind of like a a, a dracula-esque character in in such a way that she's the leader of this town and they're all under her control and so the climax of everyone kind of ganging up on jessica or everyone attempting to persuade jessica to join them kind of reminded me of the uh the climax of the wicker man of the uh, investigator eventually ending up at the hands of the townspeople and ending dying in the titular wicker man that and I think I think it's hard to like when you have a film that's a horror film in the 70s in a rural it's made in the 70s in a rural community it's hard to not see parallels with the wicker man um I like an isolated small area and everyone's wearing bell bottoms and <laughs> that's kind of, you know it, it, I, I, and I think some of the narrative as well is it makes a lot of sense totally totally uh So, the director took some inspiration from the original The Haunting movie, based on The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, that's so interesting. That can I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's my, so that's my favorite novel. Okay. It wrote it at, um, about 
music building of the college I went to, where she, I did not know this when I went there, but in Vermont, at Bennington, Vermont, um, she, uh, she wrote it on the, uh, based on the museum, or uh, the mansion that's uh, on top of the hill, that's the music building. She was a professor there. Um, so The Haunting of Hill House is really a story about, a horror story told through the lens of someone who might be not the most reliable narrator, right? Um, so, you know, you hear, you know, this, it's told through this woman, Eleanor's perspective. Um, she's coming out of a kind of traumatic situation um, and, you know, going to spend the summer in this haunted house. And so when you're reading the novel, you really aren't quite sure whether, this, whether she's mentally ill because of her trauma and what she's seeing is into some, into some degree really like exaggerated or not quite actually what's happening or if the house is really haunted. And um, and you have characters, other characters, you know, there's the same kind of isolation and you have the other characters in the novel really um, questioning her and, and kind of acting around her, like acting towards her like she's crazy, right? So you really don't know what's really happening. And I, I find that like, what I liked about The Haunting of Hill House is that that is never really resolved, you know? you include the book and you don't have a definite answer whether it happened or if um Eleanor was just kind of delusional but um I definitely got Hunting of Hill House vibes so we yeah we definitely have um an, an unreliable narrator motif yeah. at the for, for the majority of this movie and I think it's very it's it's very interesting and I think the sound design is it's very paranoid it's very atmospheric it's very creepy to to see this this character and the actress gives such a great performance she's she's very likable and you don't want any you don't want anything bad to happen to her you want you want her to to be okay and we are the the inner monologues that 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 are delivered it's frightening because this poor woman is questioning everything that she sees around her everything that's happening to her i mean you hear hear what's going on in her mind The, the the overdubs are her voice basically in whispers and the only other the only other person whose thoughts you hear are i believe emily's and Emily is doing it to invade her thoughts, and so that's why we hear her thought from the beginning, from the very, very beginning, because she sees she sees the girl when she's doing the grave rubbings before the opening credits even start, and she looks back at the guys, and you hear her thinking to herself, "Don't say anything; they won't believe you." And we also get, I mean, we get confirmation for the other characters when they when they show up at the house and they actually see. Emily, for the first time, you know, her husband comforts her and says, it's okay, Jessica, I, I saw her too. I saw it too. And she's relieved. She's visibly relieved when she hears that. I, I think that the performance really struck a balance between kind of like actual sanity, performative sanity, and then like unhingedness because of circumstances. And I thought that that was a, it was a really... That's a very nuanced balance to strike in an authentic way, and I, I think it really did nail that. Like, she's perceiving everything around her the way 
you know, it's established that the vampires are real, right? So she's not making any of this up, even though she was, like, in an institution for six months prior. Um, and so, so she's seeing everything real as, like, what, what's really happening and with a level of perception the other characters aren't kind of um, utilizing, right? And so she, so she is at once both sane and then having to perform sane for the men that her friend and her husband, right? And on top of that, also try, there's this, like, endearing kind of, um, uh, like, vulnerability that I think it, that she, she kind of presents as well. And so, yeah, I just thought her performance really, um, really did justice to the, the kind of arc of the story and, and the, the situation that she was written into. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There's, I, I, I watched it again. I hadn't seen this in a while, and I watched it again last night. Um, and I really, I would venture to say, for me personally, it's, it's some of the best acting I've ever seen. It really is with her. I can't believe, I can't believe how thoroughly convincing she is. Uh, I by, I mean, I told you for years I thought it was just this strange woman that they found to in this movie and it is very nuanced and there are different layers to it absolutely the subtext that's going on that you become immersed in in her psychology you become steeped in her psychology by the end of the movie well you know shortly into the movie you're already into her head and she has to juggle so many different things going on in her head there are the voices that she might be hearing that she heard before before she was in the institution and then there's and then there's emily and emily is constantly invading her thoughts and she and she recognizes that jessica has um and that jessica has psychic abilities basically um that's that's my interpretation at least and and so there's so there is this presentation of mental illness, schizophrenia, that could be the flip side of heightened, heightened psychic abilities. Uh, the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head to compare it to would be Donnie Darko, and that's a weird comparison to make. But I feel like the protagonist in Donnie Darko is dealing with mental illness that is actually a portal to um, psychic psychic um, abilities, you know, telepathic abilities, being able to see things, hear things that other people can't see or hear, which would drive a person crazy, if you think about it. Absolutely. You know? And I, I, used to, I also want to um, comment, I mean, we're, we're giving the actress that portrayed Jessica a lot of credit. I, I think that uh, Mary Claire Costello portraying Emily also did a phenomenal job going from what you think is just a, a, like a drifter to being utterly creepy, you know? And she makes certain scenes so unsettling, particularly... At the get-go, she wants a seance. They're all having a good time yucking it up, and she's like, let's do a seance. So it's very interesting. Did mention... So the producer of the movie was Charles B. Boss Jr. Um, I'm sorry, Charles B. Moss Jr. His father owned a uh, some some theater theaters, and so he was familiar with 
the rhythm of a of a horror movie what kind of scenes are going to stick with an audience and his suggestion for the movie was the seance scene that that's something that audiences would would latch on to that's something that would interest the audience and in hindsight she's she's conducting a seance ostensibly for herself because she's contacting the dead spirits that are in the house so she's trying to contact her family and it's uh, revealed that the the whole Bishop family, they have an interesting lineage, an interesting history in the town. And the uh, antiques dealer uh, speaks about how Abigail B- Bishop, who is Emily, died, I believe, the night before her wedding. So, And they talk about... Wow. She drowned, that's correct. So she never got to wear this beautiful wedding dress that is found in the attic of the house. And I don't know if anybody else picked up on this, but I immediately... Maybe it was just because I saw this on a Blu-ray, so it was very digitally clear. But the first picture of her, I immediately could recognize that Emily was the same woman in the picture. And I think that if I had seen the movie on a VHS copy back in the 80s, I'm not sure that I would have had, the picture would have been clear enough for me to pick up on that. So I think I was kind of robbed of one of the the interesting twists. I mean, I I saw it right away and I watched it on like a free platform, like a free streaming platform. So I definitely like, I mean, it was, I will say, yeah, the, the twists were very, Maybe for the maybe for the seventies, you know, maybe for a, you know horror of that era, it wasn't as obvious. But I could like, I, by the time they got to the um, antique dealer, it was very clear what was happening, you know. Um, but I could totally, it was like very clearly the same woman in the photo from my like my uh, streaming platform. So it, it brings into question for me. Did they want to make that uh, ambivalent or ambiguous until later in the movie, or did they care if the viewer put that together right away? I wonder. I think they wanted to keep it a mystery because if you look at like the the poster art for this movie, it's the character of Jessica in a boat with two skeleton like all you see are skeleton hands on gripping the boat, and she's got you know one of those uh, nautical tools uh looks like she's about to stab something so it's one of those movies that if you go by the title and you go by like the art associated with it you're going to take a very strange trip because it's it it, it's not at all you know what it kind of looks it's appearances can be very deceiving kind of things which i think makes this movie as great as it is because I had no idea uh, that this was going to end up being a vampire movie. That's like the last thing on my mind. I get the sense of paranoia. I get the suspense. I get the tension. If I was halfway through the movie, I never would have guessed that it was going to end up being a vampire movie. And I, I just absolutely loved that aspect. It's, it's like her final trump card that they play. I, I mean, I would call it a gimmick, but it's effectively done enough where I... You know, I can say it's actually just a trump card that they play at the end. It's like, oh boy, and they're all vampires, you know. And that moment in the poster, actually, even though it's drawn different, differently than the way it's filmed in the movie, 
that is her breaking point. It's at the very end of the movie, and she, I mean, spoiler alert, it's when she bludgeons her, her husband to death, basically. And that's just it. She's done. She's, she's, you know, she's never coming back to sanity after that. Um, I also want to mention, uh, before we get too far off the seance, I didn't quite put, you know what, I've never really put that together all the times that I've seen the movie. Emily is basically using Jessica as uh, a medium to contact her, the ghosts of her relatives, of her, of her ancestors, of her dead relatives. I'd never really put that together. So those voices that Jessica hears in the house during the seance are of Emily's family. Wow. So, yeah, so I think, I think that some of the, the stuff is where, for me, the film isn't as successful. Um, like, so, yeah, I took the seance scene to really be about establishing um, uh, Jessica as having a lot of empathy, because she actually gets really emotional and starts crying. Um, less so much about the plot. I mean, though I can see the analysis there. I think that it, it was a lot more... Um, about establishing her as a very empathic person, um, which it was also centering her, at least for me and my read, as like um, a person who's gonna ha ha be like kind of labeled as maybe not the most rational person if she's really motivated by a sense of empathy. Um, and kind of like, you know, so that leading to some of the, um, you know, the doubt that surrounds her by the people externally from her. Um, but I think, I feel like the same way about this film almost like I do about, you know, like the Vavitch uh, or the Witch um, which is an A24 uh, fairly recent kind of book horror brilliant movie um, yeah, which is that they're using it's, it's like, and I love that movie and I love this movie but they're using like imagery of like, sort of like feminist in imagery but the endings and spoiler alert for the Vavitch um, are like those endings aren't like re don't reveal it to be like some sort of symbol or some sort of hysteria or paranoia or parable the endings are like no these things are real and everyone was freaking out because these things are real and so i think with the reveal like the early reveal of the um of the fact that it was like emily in the photo if the movie had leaned into its more like social commentary piece i think it would have that would have been effective as like a kind of talking about maybe gaslighting or like almost like the way Rosemary's Baby kind of um, really like <laughs> marginalizes the female protagonist, right? Uh, into thinking, you know, so, you know, that she's being told she's crazy, but, you know, uh, the devil or now the vampires are real. But I think, I think the fact that they chose to make, um, the, or that the story made the vampires real kind of you, it kind of blurred some of the imagery I think they chose around uh, Jessica's mental illness um, and I think the, the witch does that too because to me read about like some about like kind of the hysteria around female of like you know female puberty but it was actually just like witches were real so you know it's interesting That's, I don't really have a conclusion but that was kind of my general is they kind of tried to walk a line. And I wonder if it would have how successful it would have been if it had committed to one over the other. And I think the reason why the the the, the witch or the witch as it's titled, I think why it's more effective is because it's already kind of established. Like witchcraft is already established as a as a, a potential threat 
from the very beginning of that movie and let's scare Jessica to death. I, I don't even think the word vampire is even mentioned at all. I, it, it is. Is it? About the, about the, about the, about Abigail Bishop. Okay. Antique dealer says, and now, now they say that she's a vampire that roams the land. R- okay. All right. That's the first time. It, and that's like a good, that's good halfway through the film, right? Yeah. 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 And I, that's when I figured I read out, like, I kind of had suspected before then because just simply because of the photo, right? But when then he, then the antique dealer said it and, um, and then I was like, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, another note I made, um, you know how the scene at the antique dealer where she, they're talking about the evil flowers and the glass lamp? Yep. That's actually not true. So It's, that, it's not. I saw, I read that too on IMDb. Go ahead. No, I just knew it because do, I've done like art, like using those techniques and I'm like, it means millions of, or a lot, many flowers, Millie Fl- Fiori, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does not mean it's not mal fury, which mal does mean bad, but it it is not about evil flowers, which I thought was. I wonder if that. So I started thinking: is this like kind of more about this like gaslighting theme, or is this like a mistake? You know, I, well, I was. No, but now wait a minute. The flowers have the word mal in them. M A L. No, mal does. But if you if you said mal fury, right? Mal in like Latin. Like romance languages, mal means bad, right? Yeah. M A L, right? But it, it's M, it's mil, milli, like millions, or you know, sort of like that same root word. So, the the, the technique of glass work that there, it's it's not mal fiori, it's milli fiori. <laughs> wow, that's re- I mean, what's up with that? Yeah. That's very interesting. The whole it. Even when I read that on IMDb, I was like, that's a weird little. Uh, thing to get wrong or to misinterpret or it could be that the antique yeah it could be you know the antiques dealers deliberately misinterpreting it or deliberately feeding Jessica some some lies I don't I don't really buy that though because there's such a difference between when he's human and when he's being fed upon by Emily when he's got the cut uh that it seems like he, you know, it's a, it seems like night and day. It doesn't seem like he would there would be any motivation for him to be uh, joining in in a, in a gaslighting campaign against Jessica at that point. No, and I wonder, almost wondering if it was either one, like a kind of like almost a foreshadowing through dialogue, or second, like trying to characterize the antique dealer as an idiot who didn't know what he was talking about because, like. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta also figure. This is the antique dealer that said that he closed his shop because a pizzeria moved in next door, and he hated the smell. That's also a weird comment, right? Yeah. That's that's a very. Uh, I could. See, I mean, there are certain like if a tire factory opened up to my antique store, I'd be like, yeah, I'm moving. A bakery or a pizzeria opens up next door, I think that's the kind of smell that I would like to have. You know, that's. So I I think the antiques dealer is. He's just a very interesting character. He goes from like salesman to being to being eager to look at what they have to sell, then finding out that it's from the Bishop House. 
he immediately comes very resistant, very hesitant because he doesn't really want to dabble with that because he's heard the um, the stories revolving around this family. Also, another inconsistency in that scene is how he's like, oh, I'm not going to buy this because, like, no one around here would, uh, you know, no one around here would buy stuff from the Bishop House. But then, like, his business, he even makes a comment now, his business is mostly tourists passing through, you know? So, it was, I just thought that was another inconsistency. And what's up? And what's up with the picture? Does he have, does he buy the picture? He eventually, I think he says, "Okay, I'll give you two fifty. That's supposed to include fifty for the picture, but then the picture ends up back in the attic of the house. What uh, he's dead. Did Emily? Did, oh, so what? Did Emily go into his store and get the picture and bring it back to the she, house? She didn't want the picture to leave the house because remember she was like. Can't just throw away the past like that when they were like leaving to go sell them. Right, she becomes very defensive. I I think one of the I think it's Duncan who she's not that defensive. The husband be cuts off anything that has to do with the supernatural because he's trying to protect her from you know having any kind of mental illness. Uh, you know, revisits. So I mean, he's the one who's kind of like cutting it off, cutting it off, cutting. And she's no, this is before they leave. Before they leave, um, Emily, or, yeah, she's, she doesn't, she's, like, saying stuff about how she doesn't want them to sell that particular picture before, when they're all out in the front of the house. Oh, right, at the car. And, and he makes, yeah, he makes the, he compares it, he's like, well, people sell old cars. So I think it, uh, Emily was initially trying to, yeah, to protect her, her lineage, protect that picture, because it's so vital to her existence she's basically reliving the the day that she drowned over and over again amplified in i think the best scene of the movie when she pushes jessica into the water uh they kind of tussle around in the water jessica gets out and then she slowly emerges from the water in the wedding dress it's one of the most I think it's the the easily the creepiest scene in the movie one of the best scenes just the her any sound or any music whatsoever when that happens no you mentioned that and i want to talk about the music is it's it's a very interesting combination of acoustic guitar like folk guitar and then some some synthesizer riffs but it's a very restrained score and it's very atmospheric composer that worked on the movie talked about how he was um he had he had worked with uh, John Hancock previously in the theater, but this was his first time ever scoring a movie, so he didn't really know what he was doing. He kind of he scored the movie the way that he would have scored a, a, a theatrical production. The music is awesome. I mean, it's really its own thing going on. He, I think, he was paid to do this by being given a guitar. I think he was given a guitar for scoring this movie. Uh, and some of it sounds like it's about to become like a, you know, a 60s counterculture song, like a hippie song or something, but it doesn't. It goes back into its kind of creepiness. Uh, for a while, when the movie was being rediscovered in the early 2000s, before it was re-released, uh, the, the score was posted online. I don't know if it still is on a website. I don't know if you still have to pay for it or not, but it was free at that time to listen to. Or to download uh, the, the it is minimalistic and oftentimes there is no music which made me think of the birds by Hitchcock uh, 
The Birds has no soundtrack. It's all sounds. So there are moments when, in Let's Scare Jessica to Death, where it's basically just sounds. You just hear the sounds of nature, water, birds. That's about it. And the silence, you know, the space that the silence gives, uh, there's a lot to be said for. That's where all the creepiness starts to really flourish. Absolutely. The score is beautiful. And it's one of the things, the only criticism that John Hancock said that uh, there's a couple, he called them little stingers, little synthesizer stings that kind of um, amplify some of like the little shock scenes in the movie that he's, he, he kind of wished he didn't add because like you were talking about, Andrew, it's the minimalist sounds and the absence of music just just creates this sense of dread because we're almost like so attuned to having an ongoing soundtrack in a movie that when there's no sound and we're just left with an image, we're anticipating something to happen. And in this movie, we don't know what's going, you know, I mean, the first time that I watched it, I had no idea where this movie was going. So I can't emphasize how important the music score and the uh, the sound design with all the inner monologue going on, how effective it is to adding to the atmosphere of this movie. It is, and I and I think I, I know what parts that he's talking about when he says he wish he hadn't done it. But I like it. I, I take you know I take it for what it is. But I, especially when Emily towards the end of the movie when Emily bites Woody, he she seduces him. They're making out, and then she bites his neck, and you do hear this kind of like ow. I think I think I got that pretty well actually. Uh, and that that's so seventy. There are so many things that came after yeah. that used that used that sound. But I mean, this is 1971, so it's still pretty early on. So before that time, maybe nobody had heard that as much. Uh, I also want to say what. I was just go- Something else to say, but go ahead. I was just well. I I just want to comment on the character of Woody. Well, hold on. Before we let's get to Woody in a minute. Let me sure. So just you're both you're both New Englanders, born and raised here. Correct. Phyllis, you too? Yep, born and raised in Rhode Island. Oh, right on. All right, so I, I'm not. I was born and raised in Southern California. We moved to Memphis, Tennessee. By the time I was 10 years old, uh, we moved up to Maine. So from 10 years old on, uh, I started to understand or experience New England for the first time. Now, when you go to a lake in New England, that... That, that silence, that quietness, I've never experienced before. I mean, the, the West Coast has the ocean with waves. Uh, there's the Mississippi, there is the Mississippi in, in Memphis, but I mean, that's a, that's a river that just like, you know, has a mighty power of its own. I'd never really been to a lake that was completely quiet, except for the sound of loons or birds. Uh, or the wind going through the trees. And I remember it would really, really creep me out. It did. It did. I didn't I wasn't used to that. So that is an element that is very predominant in the in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Yeah, and I, I think it does well in it because I mean again, Chris and I we grew up here so you know, you kinda don't notice what people who don't grow up here have noticed. Yep. And you know, having my husband who's not from New England, um 
you know, there are there is a lot there is a creepy, unsettling feeling. Uh, apparently, that's very pervasive in our rural areas. That I, yeah. you know, um, that I think that the film did very well capturing beyond just the lake. And I grew up on a lake. Right, I love. I have a lake very much like the lake in this film. Um, and it, I think it really did capture that. And even the um, the kind of small village kind of vibe. Um, uh, like the for me the scariest scene in the whole film was when she is in town um to go and she buys the 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 eggs right and then she goes back into um to the car and the men's like are surrounding her and there's that shot where they're like faces it's almost like a fishbowl kind of effect um their faces are right up in her to me that was a that was the scariest part and that kind of unset some of the unsettling, like, old-school rural New England vibes of, like, the kinds of uh, people who hang out. Like, it just, it was just, there was something very uh, familiar to me, and it, it really resonated with me, her fear at that moment, and, like, that whole scene with these, like, swamp Yankee old men, and um, and I thought it, it does capture New England and the eeriness of New England very, very well. Those old men are so creepy, and from the beginning, it's obvious that, uh, I mean, you know, upon uh, second and third viewings of the movie, it's obvious that they're being fed on by Emily. As soon as these people get into town, they're, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a total setup, and Jessica has no chance, really, at sanity from, from the very beginning. It's too bad, but you see the bandages on the old men, as soon as they get into town, which means that Emily has been feeding on the town already. Uh, so, but, but the, the metaphor, the metaphor is generational, and it's it is male female uh, centric. Yeah. Uh, so there's this right there's this generational older old basically old man and young woman uh, dynamic going on uh, between her and them. And it, and it cumulates in, you know, it does cumulate in what is basically like in Rosemary's Baby, um, you know, uh, basically a gathering, a ritualistic gathering for, you know, blood, sex, blood slash sex slash energy vampire-esque thing going on. So a couple things. The director commented that we're get, uh, speaking of the creepy old men in town. One of them is apparent. He's wearing a VFW jacket, and that was that was very much on purpose because the director John Hancock he was a little irritated with VFW members supporting the Vietnam War at the time. So his little shot at the VFW was kind of to make them the creepy old men in town, you know, the kind of um, out of touch people, you know, like you said, the generational gap that's there. That's that was very intentional on the director's part. But if I definitely felt that vibe with that particular shot of like the VFW jacket front and center, like it was very overt, and I, I like that. I picked it up on it. Yeah, I didn't even know what that meant. Okay. So, so, that, so that means veterans of foreign wars. So he was taking a shot at the VFW be, because, like he said, he was opposed to the Vietnam War and the VFW was supportive of the Vietnam War. But that was so that was a little shot at the VFW. I did want to talk a little bit about Woody because in rewatching this movie today, 
he kind of leads to the downfall of Jessica in a way I didn't really notice because he's the first one that's seduced by Emily and he kind of he lets the cat out of the bag because she mentions how Jessica seems a little out of it and he basically spills the beans to this this total stranger that he just met about how that Jessica's past and how she just got out of an institution which is kind of a dick move. That's a dick move to do to someone that's supposed to be your friend and trying to uh, maybe not impress, but at least have some sort of conversation to uh, to uh, get a little action with Emily. Did anyone else pick up on that? I might. So honestly, there was for me a weird kind of non-monogamy subtext to the whole thing. Um, there's a moment when right after they get to the farm where uh, Jessica touches Woody in this way that was very, like, intimate um, and almost like lovers. And I was like, is this going to go somewhere? Um, it's like, they're, are they just like a, are they a, a uh, what is that, a thrumple or something? Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, so, that's what my, like, polyamorous friends call their freeway relationships. But um, not that I have many. But that's cool if that's your life, whatever. Right. Um, um, but I, I felt like there was some... There was definitely a level of, like, sexual dynamics between, like, all, especially when the four of them were all, like, kind of, before, like, the vampire shit starts, really. Um, and then, like and then, bathing in the lake. Yeah, there's just a very, like, and, and maybe that's, like, a reference to, like, kind of the dark side of the free love kind of thing that they're all coming out of and that, the, you know, at the end of the 60s that's starting to decline and that, you know... much i think this just leads to the um appearances might be deceiving but when i when i first started watching the movie you know the dynamic that i initially saw from the three of them is i kind of assumed 
since Duncan looks a little bit older and he's, you know, got a receding hairline, I assume, because I knew that it was a husband and wife and a friend, I thought Woody was the husband at first until it was clearly established. I just kind of assumed that he would, because he looks younger, he looks closer to Jessica's age. Uh, I kind of, you know, and that's that's shame on me for assuming. I, you know, I that I shouldn't have done that. But no, that's interesting that you did assume that. Like it wasn't clearly defined then for you. It, initially, it wasn't. I just knew what the the premise of the movie was. I knew that it was a husband, wife, and a friend. I almost I almost thought that Duncan was like her father. It, you know, I hate to say it. I I don't I don't want to, but like. Well, I mean, he's got kind of a father. He's kind of forced into a father role with her because she's you know she's not stable, and he has to assume the responsibility of that in a lot of ways. Can we talk about her supposed lack of stability? Because like, again, like other than a, a and maybe it's different because we all live in like horrible anxiety times, but like. I didn't think she seemed crazy. I, th- I I think she seemed really, like, pretty level. And, like, you know, I mean, she did kind of, like, freak out about the blood in the, on the dinner plate. And, like, but, like, you know, the film and the narrative, it tells us everything she was afraid of was real, right? So, yeah. for, so for me, the, the element of her, the only thing that gave me proof or any sort of... Con- evidence of her being crazy is the way people talked about her but her actions did not indicate to me a crazy person um and even at the end like oh she you know uh andrew you made a comment oh she's never gonna be sane but i like i you know like that that's she she like has gone through substantial uh paranormal trauma that was resulting in her like husband like her killing her husband but who was cheating on her with a vampire so it, it seems like all of her her reactions were that of a sane person, you know? Absolutely. And I'm curious as to why she was institutionalized. Because I don't know if you guys had ever read the Yellow Wallpaper. I have, yes. Yeah, so, you know, that's like a classic work about, like, fascinating and female hysteria and, like, you know, Victorian, like, limitations on women. Um, and, and there was an element to me that also reminded me a lot of the yellow wallpaper, which is like everyone's going around saying she's hysterical, um, and but the, everything was real, you know? And I don't... What was she locked up about? Like, why was she in an institution? I was thinking um, the same thing. I, 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 I really am curious because I was, I'm wondering now, in hindsight, was she being gaslit the first time i mean i i really want to know because like you said she comes she comes across as someone that's very sensible very practical you know she's not i mean i i don't know because i've worked with people that that have schizophrenia so i know what schizophrenia and i know what bipolar looks like i could i know what someone that suffers from those illnesses deals with and and how they sometimes express themselves it's interesting that some of the inner monologues were not initially scripted and they were actually added later in post-production because I think the film was a little too ambiguous with it. Some of the audience was kind of lost. A preview during preview screenings or something? I don't know if there were preview screenings per se. It was probably more so with like producers and people involved in the production but the the director said that for example for example the initial opening of the movie we we are given the first inner monologue from jessica that was added after the fact 
to kind of oh, give. Wow. Yeah, that to. When she, when she sees the girl and she says, "Don't say anything; they won't believe you." Actually, the very opening of the movie with her in the boat talking about how not about how. Ev- that was just silence before. Yes. I agree. I agree uh, with both of you that she, it's it's an interesting template because she, her character actually makes the most sense. And, and it's because we're with her in her thoughts. Uh, but she does make the most sense. Even without those thoughts, I think she would make the most sense. She is the most, she is the most sensitive character. She seems to be uh, more in tune with her emotions. The other characters don't. Uh, she she seems to be a very um, evolved human being, actually, which brings into question which brings into question females who are perhaps uh, very evolved to the point where they don't fit into society into a uh, I'm gonna say it a male dominated society. There's. It, it, <laughs> It reminds me, I did think of The Hours. I love the movie The Hours. And at one point, I got my hands on a screenplay for The Hours that had certain elements in it that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. And there is a scene, one of the things that didn't make it into the final cut is a scene where Virginia Woolf is arguing with her husband, and he wants her to go back to the city and go back to her doctors. And at some point, she says... How about, how about a world, something to the effect of, how about a world where we lock up all the male doctors in a room instead of all the women? Something to that effect. Uh, so it brings into question women who see things that men don't and how that, the repercussions that women have to deal with because of that. If that makes any sense. It does, and that's, I mean, that's a, a historically, especially in, like, white Western society, been a very established kind of uh, reality. And, that, I mean, it's a reality that still very much exists for women. Um, you know, and I think, I think it exists, you know, for people who are motivated by empathy or kind, you know, a sense of, you know, we, we don't live in a society that values some of those skill sets and that skill sets women are often conditioned. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the idea of, like, women being hysterical, like, hysterical, and this is an off-cited, often-cited feminist kind of refrain that hysterical kind of comes from a Greek word meaning, like, cervix, right? And that, like, you know, um, you know, that's, that's, a, a, a long-standing trope for, for especially smart and sensitive women. Um, we're often seen as crazy. Um, it's easier to institutionalize us than to answer the question, and I'm saying we because I clearly identify with this kind of person, um, but then to answer the questions we're asking or the, you know, deal with the, the inconvenience of us. Um, and and I think that in some ways this, co- again, going back to what I said, a point I said a little, a little earlier is that I think, I think that um, this film approaches a commentary about that, but I do not think it fully commits one. I think at the end of the day, it still wants to be a vampire movie. So yeah. I feel like these answer these questions we're asking in this conversation we're having right now, like the movie doesn't really fully flesh out these concepts. It just kind of toys with them. 
I feel like that's a kind of disservice to the the the, the critique that it's trying to offer. You know? I I think so, and I think that that kind of comes back to why I, I mentioned the the original screenplay was a is a goofy campy horror movie about hit about hippies and a monster in a lake and John Hancock took like the bare bones of that there is something in the lake it just happens to be a vampire but he yeah I I, I don't think I think it there's a lot of ideas here that that could be more fleshed out I can't, I can't argue with that I I I just want to say that this comes back to the whole thing is I I question now whether the the initial was she committed against her will by her husband for this. Well, here's here's the deal. Here's the okay. I mean, I I don't mean to interrupt you, but but my thought is if if she's so I mean here we here we're dealing with we 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 know, we might. If those voices were put in, if those inner monologues were put in in post-production, then I don't know what kind of argument I'm trying to create here. But my thought is, from watching the movie, is that she's afraid of letting people know that she's hearing voices. So if that's the case, she was probably hearing voices before... And that's why she went into the institution. However, you're telling me that in post-production they added in all of those voices and in her, in her monologue. Not, not all of them. Her own. Okay. So, were, Emily was still invading her thoughts in the original. Yes. But okay. m- more in her monologue was added. Then my assumption is that she was hearing voices before. But it's not... It's not... It's not something that you... She doesn't really hear voices within the context of the actual film. She's ha- she's hearing real voices. She's hearing her own voice, and she's hearing Emily's, who is doing it to her, which is right. real. So she's not, you know. So what's the? I don't know what the real deal is. Question could be: Does she actually suffer from a mental illness, or is she just someone that is like a medium for the paranormal? Is she able? But my, but my point is, when she starts hearing voices when she starts hearing Emily she does oh, now wait a minute oh I don't know so I, I don't read at all that she's a psychic or that she's having a, that, that her sensitivity to like her cause Emily Emily clearly has like all the telepathic, telepathic power that a vampire would have right so I feel like it's more at a narrative level it's more like Emily exploiting her vulnerability than it is about latent psychic powers but I mean, um, during the seance, Jessica can hear the voices, right? Right, but I, I feel like it's vague enough that it could just be that... To me, it was much more about the empathy that of, of this character than it was... Because she, she was hearing... But I mean, you can be empathic and not hear the voices of dead people. I mean, she's hearing the voices of dead people. I, I, I didn't interpret it, like, as as literally as that. And I... The other thing I'm thinking about is, is that... so. There are, like I mentioned at the top of the show, there are really concrete uh, historical documentation of New England vampire mythology. And when you read them, I mean, when you go into them in depth, it's all his, it's all men, right, being afraid of young women, um, 
spreading illness, right? And it's and to the point where, like, so Mercy Brown, who's the most famous Rhode Island vampire, um, her she had tuberculosis, she died. Uh, the village uh, in Exeter, Rhode Island, convinced itself that she was returning from the dead to infect her siblings, not being unwilling to understand like the way that tuberculosis spreads, right? Which is that anyone in close quarters is going to get tuberculosis tuberculosis and so they dug up her grave and they burned her heart and made her, her siblings eat her heart or burned her. what yes and that happened in the 1890s in exeter rhode island you can go to her grave i've gone to her grave many times because i feel like she's a victim like a posthumous victim of like of like this kind of like fear of women right and so for me a lot of this movie, especially with the, the use of vampires now, Emily is someone or like to she's presented as a concrete real thing. But it's hard to like watch this movie and know the history of Rhode Island and know the things we were talking about about women and mental illness without kind of really drawing some parallels about you know men being afraid of, of women's like intuition and knowledge and punishing them for it. You know. Um, so it's, it's a complicated thing. And I, I just, so I didn't really interpret, I guess, in a, this world where a vampire is real, right? Like Emily or Jessica could be hearing voices at a seance, right? Um, but to me, it felt more like a manipulation of Emily to, like, make her unstable. So, a ma- a ma- man- excuse me, a manipulation from Emily on yeah. Jessica. Okay. Yeah. Her empathy like her sensitivity to like the suffering of other people which i think affirms the fact that she might be being exploited by a male-dominated world who doesn't understand those skills so john hancock wanted to just call the movie jessica and why is that his name i don't understand that's such a generic name i feel like it's one of those spitty you know when you take your name off a movie you just put john hancock on there that's what you do when you sign your signature. Such a weird. Yeah, that's like he was the first person to sign the the Declaration of Independence. So he was he was convinced by the producers to change the movie to "Let's Scare Jessica to Death." I, he never goes into like the reasoning behind it, though. He he kind of just they said that we could um it'll be more profitable. We can capitalize more on this movie. If we um, give it a more like sinister kind of title, it it's kind of harkens back to those movies like um, what happened to Baby Jane. Wanted to call it Jessica. Just Jessica. Wow. And so, if you're trying to market a horror movie, and you're you know in the '70s, so you're you're looking at the newspaper to see what movies are coming out. You see a movie called Jessica. You don't know, what is this? Is this a biopic? Is this going to just be, I mean, what's this, who who is Jessica, you know? So, the producers... They did it with Lucy. They made a movie called Lucy. Uh, More recently, there's just been movies that are, I mean, there's a horror movie that came out a couple years ago just called Stephanie. But I think in the 70s, there, there were, you know, there weren't as many horror movies coming out. There weren't as many movies coming out as there are now. So they kind of needed a title that was going to grab people's attention. And they came up with, let's scare Jessica to death. And they never really comment on why they chose this title. So I just think it's it's a very 
ambiguous title that kind of, but it speaks to the gaslighting aspect that I don't think that they really knew or were kind of like naive to that they were doing in a way. First of all, let's scare Jessica to death as a title implies like some level of coordination that was like not present amongst the like protagonists of the film, like or the antagonists. Like Emily wasn't Woody and into like crazy, right? Which is kind of. Can you say that again? You broke up. So. It, it implies a level of coordination that doesn't exist in the film. So and you, you don't think Emily was doing that? Emily wasn't coordinating a gaslighting. Uh, I think I think Emily was. Yeah. But I don't think she was like I don't think that Duncan or Woody were willing and active participants in that gaslighting, which is what the title would imply. Um, and I I think I think that Emily was. I don't think it was like gaslighting in the. I don't think the gaslighting thing is as fleshed out, and I don't think that they were very intentional. I don't think it was an intentional trope. I don't think so, no. Peace was the unreliable narrator. Yes, yeah. But, but I, again, I don't think that was successful completely either, because she wasn't unreliable, right? Exactly, yeah. And like you said, coordination, it almost reminds me there's like a movie, I think it was an 80s movie called April Fool's Day, where it's a coordinated like party at a uh, at a mansion and it's a bunch of people. They think that their friends are being killed off, but it turns out just to be a series of elaborate pranks. And they're all they're all actually goofing on this one woman in the movie that it turns out that all our friends are at the, at the end of the movie spoilers for April Fool's Day from the 80s people but um it turns out that all her friends are still alive it was all just i mean you could almost call i mean if the character in the movie April Fool's Day was Jessica you could call that movie let's scare Jessica to death and that would make more sense than in the context of this movie because it's like let's implies more than one people it's not I will scare Jessica to death, or so. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could say that, you know, by the end, it's Emily and company. But the end result, like brainwashed. But the. But the brainwashed by the end. Well, I mean, they're vampires in the end. Yeah. So. They're not like giving consent. Right. But but the end game here, the you know, in a way, I can almost see Emily. You know, I can't really see Emily doing this, but I could see Emily being like, "Let's scare Jessica to death," you know, with with everybody in the town. But but the end game here is not to scare her to death; it's kind of to incorporate her into their vampire cult. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like. Like, that's not what the... Like, at no point did it seem that... You want her dead. Yeah. Unless, unless they're not vampires at all, and they're just trying to get rid of her so they can have, like, a thrumble with Woody and Duncan, right? But then it goes bad and she kills Duncan. Now, am I... They're pretending to be vampires. They're pretending to not be vampires, but then pretending to be vampires. So she goes crazy and leaves. But ultimately... Ultimately, in the, in, in the climax of the movie, if I'm not mistaken... It's like 90% men 
or maybe even a hundred percent men that are under Emily's control. Yes. No, no, girl. The girl. The girl is. The girl is being uh, preyed upon by her. But but the, but the girl is also trying to warn Jessica what's happening. She's not in on it. No. So it's kind of like um, it's almost like a uh, matriarchal cult led by Emily. It's not a matriarchal cult because a matriarchal cult would be more than one person. It's just a crazy mean vampire who uses her like sexuality to be a vampire. And that's a, it's not a it's not a power structure because it's like one person, you know? And similar to to Dracula, she feeds on both men and women. Um she seduces Woody but there's also a sense that she almost tries to seduce Jessica in one scene. In particular, she's rubbing, like, um, uh, suntan lotion on her back near the lake. Just that one scene. She's, she's always up in Jessica's business in that aspect. So Always trying to get close to her. So that just, like, goes to this. Actually, this, is a good, this is a good point to bring up. It's also based, this movie is also based on uh, a novel, a novella called Carmilla. Carmilla is about, uh, I don't know when it was written. Can I get off here and go? Can you still hear me? Okay, so I can, hold on, let me go on my browser. Do, 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 do. Where is this? All right, let me read this off real quick. Carmilla is an 1872 gothic novella by Irish author Sheridan Le Fanu. And one of the early works of vampire fiction, predating Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years, first published as a serial in The Dark Blue, the story is narrated by a young woman preyed upon by a female vampire named Carmilla, later revealed to be Markella, Countess Karnstein, Karnstein. The character is a prototypical example of the lesbian vampire expressing romantic desires toward the protagonist. The novella notably never acknowledges homosexuality as an antagonistic trait, leaving it subtle and morally ambiguous. The story is often anthologized and has been adapted many times in film and other media. That's it. Yeah, that makes sense. I I definitely got that kind of sapphic vibe with, like, some of Emily's behaviors, you know, I think that, I think similar that's to, actress, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and similar, sorry, I don't know, similar to Interview with the Vampire, I got frustrated reading Interview with the Vampire because um, all of that homoeroticism never, never really went anywhere, so similar here. Yeah. Yeah. There's way good 70s horror films about, like, you know, traffic, this adventure, so, like, the, the Hanging Rock, to me, is a good... If we're going to talk about, like, queerness, right? I think Hanging Rock does a much better job at kind of, like, tying in some of the themes. Um, well, of, Picnic, like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's one we should do for this podcast if you haven't seen it, Chris. That is an excellent, excellent film. Yeah, that's, what, that's definitely one of my favorite films. Yeah, and it's based on a true story, right? No. It actually happened? No, it's based on a, on a novel. Oh. Yeah, what? but it's... it's yeah, I have a lot to say about that movie. I love that movie. Okay. <laughs> well, well, let's uh, put a pin on that, and then we'll we'll, we'll cover it at some point. Uh, I I like the fact that 
it doesn't go in an exploitive nature as far as uh, sex and sexuality goes. I mean, this movie is rated PG-13. I mean, the PG-13 rating didn't exist back in the 70s. So this is, um, I guess it probably would have been released as PG. But as far as, so as far as PG, PG PG-13 horror goes, this is an exceptionally effective, creepy, psychological horror that will make you it, it you you feel paranoia along with Jessica um and I can't emphasize how how much like how invested uh, just through the performances how invested you become with wanting this poor woman and you feel like a sense of relief with her to know that you know what I'm not crazy these things are happening it's yeah but which is worse well I think that's I think that's what this movie leaves you with and i think that's such an why this movie is so effective because it leaves you with this feeling of would it be better to 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 think that i was insane or is it better to know that these crazy things that are happening are are, are reality yeah i mean i've let me jump in i've i've i have struggled with mental illness in the past um and there are moments where i have covered my senses and put it together you know let's let's get it together Andrew let's start thinking rationally like other people only to realize that that you know the world is insane I'm sorry you know so it's there is this kind of like back and forth if you've struggled with mental illness before there is a back and forth with like now wait a minute what's the crazy you know what's who's the crazy person me or everybody else yeah, for me, as, like, a woman with, like, a lot of anxiety, like, and I, you know, I'm, it's pretty significant and a huge part of my life. You know, that's where I really resonated with the character of Jessica, because I, I, I felt like, yeah, she's feeling anxiety, and it's also kind of reasonable anxiety to feel, you know? And that's, that's how I feel, like, navigating 2020 as a person with anxiety. Yeah, I'm freaking out all the time, but, like, Look at the external factors that are contributing to that. Like, it would be weird if I wasn't freaking out, you know? Right, right. And so I, I really enjoyed that kind of uh, parallel there. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a very sad ending, but it's also a satisfying ending. So it, it's it's kind of a mixed bag because it leaves it leaves you kind of wanting to know. You almost kind of want an epilogue to know that Jessica's okay, you know? She's not gonna be. No, I mean, I. I think she's out of this stupid marriage, and I think she's gonna go and like live like her brilliant like dream life with meaning and like you know maybe be a a historian, art historian about grave imagery or something. Like I want her to go like be an independent woman. Right. That's definitely what she deserves. But the movie is, you know, we're we're left we're left not knowing, and I think I think that kind of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of audiences want their their hands held throughout a movie, and they want us they want a happy Hollywood ending. This movie does not offer either. It's not going to hold your hand. It's not going to walk you through this movie, and you're not going to have a happy Hollywood ending. But I'm okay with that. I I like looking at movies like this as a piece of art because life doesn't always have a happy Hollywood ending. And I think so. I, I think we're given a satisfying ending to this, this, this movie. And I just think it's a brilliant little movie 
that unfortunately, you know, if Andrew hadn't introduced me to it, I I, I never would have heard of it. And I like to think that I'm pretty familiar with with horror movies. But I think I told you, Andrew, like, I was just like, it, this movie completely blew my mind the first time I saw it. it. It's such a unique horror movie. It's so unique. There's, I mean, I can't really think of any other. I mean, there's aspects, like I said, you know, um, I, I could see aspects of The Wicker Man. I could see aspects of Rosemary's Baby. I could see aspects of The Haunting. But something like this and the way that it turns out to actually be a vampire, just a vampire movie at the end, uh, it's so unique and I can't recommend this movie enough. And it is weird that it ends up being a vampire movie. Like, yeah. I really, I don't think of it that way. I think it's almost... And the ending is satisfying, but in a way, it's kind of like, okay, so this... <laughs> I, this was a horror. This was a vampire movie. That's what I just watched. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it almost vampire gaslights you as a viewer. You're just like, what? what the fuck? This whole time I was watching a vampire movie? Uh, Phyllis, any final thoughts on Let's Scare Jessica to Death? Well, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for, um, and for the podcast for recommending it. Um, it was definitely something that, you know, I, ha I had mixed feelings about, but I mostly really, really enjoyed it. So I'm. Uh, thank you for recommending it and making me watch it. Andrew, final thoughts on Let's Get Jessica to Death? Phyllis, thank you for joining us. It was uh, kind of important for us to have you for this because the protagonist is, is female, and I don't mean to pigeonhole you as a guest in that respect, but I wanted your insight because it is so centric yeah. Yeah, into her mind, and you gave a lot of insight. Thank you so much. Yeah, to have two, to have two, um, two guys just talk about let's scare Jessica to death. Certainly, wouldn't we wouldn't be able to do it justice the way that you were able to bring such incredible insight to it in your own interpretations and your opinions of the movie. So, um, it was absolutely our pleasure uh, once again to have you on this the show. You you made the show once again. So, um, kudos to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, as well as the historical information. Thank you for supporting oh, that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a lot of information in this old brain of mine, and I'm happy to be like your female, like you know, representation when you're when you're dealing with a movie about female issues. And, or, or, yeah. I hope that this is not the last time that Phyllis joins us on the show. Once again, you've uh, a phenomenal guest, and we couldn't have done it without you. So, um, for Andrew. Yes. Oh, no, hold on. Just, I wanted to say one more thing about the movie. The thing that I love about Let's Scare Jessica to Death so much is that it sits in real time a lot. And a lot of people don't like this movie because it's, it's long and they consider it slow, too slow for them. But I, I love, and even re-watching re it last night, I was thinking, wow, this movie is going on and on. I don't know where it's going, but it just keeps on going. Uh, but I didn't mind it. I like the fact that you can sit in a scene with a camera, just, you know, looking at pe people sitting in a room for five minutes, ten minutes, as they, uh, you know, slowly get into whatever they're getting into. I miss that in movie making. Uh, and Let's Scare Jessica to Death was made very much like that. Well, absolutely. This this is... um. It, it me and Phyllis uh, briefly mentioned The Witch, um, which also is a movie that you sit with. Um, the pacing 
is very similar to Let's Scare Jessica to Death, and it doesn't it doesn't appeal to mainstream horror audiences. And I understand that, but I wish people would give these types of movies a chance because I I think you'd be pleasantly surprised as I was. But then again, this is the kind of movie that I can really I can really enjoy. I could sit back and watch. And it's so engrossing. It's it's a beautifully shot move, movie. And like I said, the music, the sound editing, it's so well done. It's such, it's just, even even if you don't necessarily like the idea of it being a vampire movie, it's just, it's so unique. It's just something that, um, that we like to to showcase on our on our podcast here because it 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 truly is a cult movie and it 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 should be mentioned up there with some of the great 70s horror movies and um we'd like to thank you all from um the cult film companion podcast uh thank you for joining us through this deep dive through an absolutely beautiful movie and for some reason if you've listened to all of this and you haven't watched the movie please watch it or if you have seen it and you haven't rewatched it recently it it holds up it's worth a rewatch recommend it to people because uh i it doesn't get the consideration or recognition that it it deserves so i'm gonna get off my soapbox now thank you all for joining us thank you so much to my our special guest phyllis for once again bringing in a, a incredible insight andrew thank you for joining me as usual on our weekly excursions through uh cult cinema and thank you all for listening have a wonderful night We'll talk to you real soon.